You're listening to World of Empowerment Radio. Your station for practical spirituality in a changing world. And here are your hosts, Angel Rose and Ahanu. You are very welcome. My name is Ahanu and this is my lovely twin flame, Angel Rose. That's right. And Angel Rose and I have a real treat for you today. We will be interviewing a gentleman by the name of Charles Scammerhorn. And Charles is one of those people who is an absolute wealth of information, isn't he, Angel Rose? He, he is. Mm-hmm. He, he has a knowledge that stretches back, actually, over 80 years. He likes to say 80 and a half. You'll hear him talking about that in June. That's a child in him, huh? It's the child in him. But you know what? It's a lovely quality because he's able to tell stories that have happened to him in his adult life, but it's like as if he still has that childish interest in the, in life and in the world and in what's going on. But why it's of interest to us is because Angel Rose likes to tell the story of how she, when she was studying journalism or something, when she was a, a younger person, she wanted to interview her father and she wanted to interview older people. And you'll hear us talking about that. And we're looking to try and get at those gems of wisdom, that those beautiful, wonderful stories that they have about things that otherwise would be lost to us. That's right. And the reason we're having Charles on is because he's lived such an interesting life. And he was uh, around when they were creating the first atomic bomb. In fact, he lived, uh, he could actually see the facility or across a field from his, where he his lived. His house was the closest to that manufacturing plant. That's right. Yeah, where they were developing it. And not only that, but didn't he go on to meet the developer of the atomic bomb, Robert Oppenheimer? And he yeah. tells us that story, and the story also of how he met Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, why we thought this was important is because it brings up so many questions. Number one, about nuclear energy and nuclear bombs and the way that we... Um, seek to destroy one another and it's very rare that you find someone who was there firsthand and witnessed the invention of it actually and he was asked to carry one in his fighter jet right he went on to bomber yeah he went on to join the navy and he was Mm. a fighter pilot the air force air force and he was asked to carry one of these nuclear missiles on board his plane and he refused Mm. but we won't tell him the whole story so this will be a two or three part uh, series. And so we want you to know that we are leading up to a very spiritual and metaphysical discussion at the end about our world today and how we use energy. And indeed, Charles himself has, you know, is really a very uh, gentle man, isn't he? Huh? Yes. A very spiritual man and, and how somebody uh, could have the courage to refuse to carry the bomb while he was in the service. And, and the interesting thing about that is that there is a whole other side of society that would look upon that as cowardice and not, and not um, what did I call it? Um, being loyal. Being a tra- traitor to his country. And so yes, that kind yeah, of Yeah, but you know, his conscience just wouldn't let him. Wouldn't let him kill. But we don't want to tell the whole story. No, no, but, no. but we're letting our listeners know that yes. we are leading... The purpose for interviewing Charles is not only 
because here is a man in his 80s who was around when the atomic bomb was made. He met the maker. He, um, he was around when the bomb was dropped. He's seen the destruction. And he is very interested in solutions to humanity in this time period, which we all are. Yes. So this, this segment is going to bring up many questions about our survival, about mm -hmm. how we use energy. And um, so lots of other spiritual conversations that we're going to have around this when we interview Charles again, which uh, so this will be in parts, like I said. Mm -hmm. So the segmentation of those parts is important because, and you'll find that in this section, we're really just laying the groundwork, we're setting the stage. And then in the next part, we move into, you know, those grueling questions about, you know, how, how do we deal with it? How do we right. cope with it? Right. And then the, the final part will be the the whole metaphysical, spiritual aspect of the whole thing. That's right. Yeah. So, so stay with us. Stay with us. And don't Absolutely. turn off your radio because you don't want to hear about the bomb. Keep listening because we're leading somewhere very important. See you shortly. You are all very, very welcome. My name is Ahanu and with me is Angel Rose and our good friend Charles Scammerhorn. Now we're going to come to Charles Scammerhorn in a few minutes because we have got such a mine of information to extract out of him. We've had the benefit of having some of that information already, but we're going to leave you wait for a few minutes. First of all, I want to talk to Angel Rose about something she did when she was very, very young. And what she did was she actually had this desire to interview older people. Now, I, I don't want to be disrespectful here, and I want to put this in context. Right? Especially because now I'm old, huh? Well, <laughs> so am I. Well, but here, here's the thing, though. You, you recognized, didn't you, Angel Rose, that you wanted to somehow record or get stories from people who were older, much older than you at the time, because I think you were just a student, weren't you? No, no, no. This is Tell only a few story. years ago in Ireland, Ahana, when your mother was in daycare. No, I'm talking about going back when you wanted to interview your father. Oh, that's right. Long yeah, time yeah. Ago. Tell well, us that. you know, yes, I had realized that I was in my 20s, and I never knew my dad. Not really. I mean, I never knew his history. Right. You know, only him as my dad. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed him. I was actually taking a college course on article writing. Right. And I found out that he was in two of the armed forces at the same time, the Navy and the Army. And uh, he was a map maker. He was the one who mapped out the places that ended up being targets. Wow. And he also got some sort of an award for making the best beer and whiskey. Okay. So here we are. So here we are. We're, we're, yes. we're going to come full circle with this because we're going to be talking about the Army and the Navy. We are. We're going to be talking about targeting bombs. And we're also going to be talking about getting this information from people that otherwise might be lost. And this is what you wanted to do, wasn't it? Well, I did. And then it's resurfaced again, like I said, when we were in Ireland a few years back, mm -hmm. when your mother was in daycare during the day. And you and I went in there to visit her. And I couldn't believe what I saw. I was just in shock. All, the, all that was there was all these chairs lined up against the wall, on all the walls, and all these elderly people just sitting there like in a stupor. Mm -hmm. And I looked at them all and I thought, they probably all have such rich histories and stories to tell. Yes. That somebody ought to make it their business yes. to find out about these people. 
And all their stories was effectively going to waste, wasn't it? I mean, that's what it looked like. They that were. Their, their they lives with them. was dying with them, yes. It was, it was sad. It was very sad. And each one of them, though, you know, when, if, if we had had the time or the, the, the wherewithal at that point to explore with each one of them, they would have had marvellous stories to tell and histories to tell. They would have. Yeah. That was a valid to maybe their children when they were growing up, but now was being lost to the world. Okay, so I wanted to put that age issue into context, and I said I wanted to do it with the utmost respect for Charles, who is with us, because you're you're eighty one, isn't that right? Or you? Uh, eighty and a half and <laughs> twenty two days. <laughs> you the days, much like a child yeah. might, yeah. Well, exactly. Thing. When I was about four and a half, I used to say, you know, I'm three going on four, and my grandfather said, April 1st is your half birthday, so after April 1st, you can say, I'm going on four. No. Uh, so ever good. since then, come April 1st, I up it. You're going on. So I'm 80 day. years old by most people's standards, but I'm 80 and a half, yeah. plus April 1st, plus whatever we got. Now, on. here's the thing. Being 80 means you were born in 1935. Yes. October. Now, 1935 to most people alive today, you know, most people alive today, see 85 as being way back there. They, they have no recollection of that time period. Yeah. You know, you were coming out of the Depression. Your yeah. parents certainly lived through it. Oh, yes. I remember yeah. the first day of the war. And, you, yeah. you, and this was going to say, so you were facing into a world war yeah. as a young man. And this is something that is beyond the memory of most people alive today. Yeah. So this is why I wanted to talk to you, Charles, because you have got some experiences that most people have never had, and we want to try and we want to try and pull on those today and okay. and have you talk about them because okay. it's only somebody of your age who would know about them. You were there, your first-hand experience of them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what I want you to do is, well, well, he, here's what I want to do first, if you don't mind. Yeah. I took the time to, to do a little bit of research earlier on, and I wanted to particularly look at the story of the atomic bomb, okay? And I, let this put things in context for what you have to say, mm -hmm. because I believe it's very valuable for mm -hmm. our listeners. Mm -hmm. So just give me a moment. Let me get my glasses, because as a function of old age, I find myself having to use glasses, and Charles here doesn't have to use I, glasses at all. Uh, I'm a lot more intimate with the atomic bomb than you probably realize. I know. Okay. <laughs> I know, and that's why I'm actually setting the stage for this. Okay. So the story, as far as we're concerned, about the atomic bomb started around the beginning of the 1900s, when physicists began to publish papers about radioactivity. They were interested in the behavior of alpha particles and the properties of various materials when irradiated. And many of these scientists were well known, such as Ernst Rutherford, Niels Bohr of Denmark, Pierre and Marie Curie of France, and Albert Einstein of Germany. By the early 1900s, these physicists were studying the atom and a scattering of alpha particles. In 1908, Rutherford demonstrated that the alpha particle was an atom of helium. In 1911, he announced that the nucleus of the atom was a minute, concentrated mass surrounded by orbiting electrons. And by the 1930s, the nuclear scientists were already trying to split the atom of uranium with a neutron. At the same time, anti-Semitism was rising in Germany and Russia. 
Hitler was Chancellor of Germany in 1933 and the Nazis began persecuting the German Jews and abolished their civil rights. German Jewish scientists began to emigrate, mostly to the United States. These same emigrants included Einstein, von Neumann and many others and they continued their nuclear research in the United States and in Britain. By 1939, the thinking of nuclear scientists had progressed to the fission of uranium-235 uranium isotope and the possibility of producing a massive atomic explosion with it. Meantime, German intelligence was concerned over the direction of nuclear research in the US and in Britain and they set about their own nuclear program. In the summer of 1939, US physicists, including Einstein, became alarmed by the possibility of Germany successfully developing an atomic bomb and sent a letter to warn President Roosevelt. Okay. Describing the new powerful bombs, the letter went on to recommend that the US government speed up its nuclear experiments. The following month saw nuclear committees spring up in the various departments of the US government and the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941 only accelerated the development of the atomic bomb in the United States until on the afternoon of December 2nd, 1942, they achieved a self-sustaining nuclear reaction using uranium-235. But then they discovered a new material called plutonium. The use of plutonium had several advantages over uranium-235. It had greater explosive power, it was lighter and smaller in size and was easier to manufacture. The Manhattan Project which was a name derived from its birthplace and used for security reasons, moved into high gear and in September 1942, responsibility for that project was given to Leslie Groves, a colonel soon to be promoted to general in the Corps of Engineers. Groves selected Oak Ridge, Tennessee to be the site for a manufacturing plant for isotope separation to produce uranium-235 from uranium-238 in sufficient quantities to make atomic bombs and to make the plant ready for operation in January 1944. In early 1945, the Tennessee plant began shipping weapons-grade uranium-235 to Los Alamos, where weapons development was taking place. This is where our story comes around to our special guest today, Charles Gamahorn, because in early 1943, Groves selected Hanford, Washington as the best site for plutonium production, and isn't that where our young Charles Gamahorn moved to. So, when do I get to start talking? I, I'm going to give it to you in a second because you're, okay. you're going to take over <laughs> this entire conversation. I, I only want to set the stage here. Okay, fine. Yeah. Um, so, you were what? You were just... What age would you have been in 1944? You were, you were nine. Well, I, I wasn't in... I, I moved to... Uh, Hanford, uh, across the street from it, actually, uh, 1949. Okay, so you would have been 15, 15 or thereabouts, yes. right? I was a sophomore in high school. Okay. Now, that place is important, as we'll find out as time goes on. So this location was selected by General Groves, and he selected a man by the name of Robert Oppenheimer as the director of that facility, a man who you, Charles, were to meet in person, as we'll find out later on. But first, in early 1944, the Army Air Forces started to develop an atomic bomb delivery capability using the B-29 aircraft. The B-29 was a logical choice because of its long range, 
its superior high altitude performance and the ability to carry an atomic bomb that was expected to weigh 9,000 to 10,000 pounds. Now, you were trained to fly that bomber, isn't that right? Not the B-29. Not the B-29? Uh, B-47. B-47, okay. So there will be some corrections in here because I'm, I'm trying to, as I say, just position all of this. So in March of 1944, dummy atomic bombs began being dropped by B-29s at Muroc Army Air Force Base in California to test all the bomb bay dropping mechanisms. In August of that year, 17 B-29s were modified from the lessons that were learned in California. That same month, a special group began training to deliver the first atomic bombs. And you, Charles, are one of the people who are still alive who can tell us about that. Now, meantime though, President Roosevelt died on April 12, 1945, and the new president, Harry Truman, inherited the responsibility for all nuclear weapons decisions. His first decision was whether to drop an atomic bomb on Japan. The target committee, composed of Groves' deputy, scientists and others, met in Washington in April 1945 to select cities, and it was here that they chose 17 cities in a list that included Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The next step in development of a weapon was to conduct a live test of a nuclear detonation. The site was to be on the Alamogordo bombing range, 200 miles south of Los Alamos. The test site, named Trinity, saw an implosion bomb using plutonium detonated on the 16th of July 1945, and its yield was estimated to have been in the range of 18.6 kilotons. Shortly before the Trinity test, the USS Indianapolis left San Francisco, carrying most of the parts for what was to be the first atomic bomb dropped on Japan. The bomb was called Little Boy. Its destination was Japan, and components of another bomb, an implosion weapon, called Fat Man, intended to be dropped on a second Japanese city that was also ready for action. The directive releasing the atomic bomb for use listed the targets to be attacked and included Hiroshima and Nagasaki and referred to more than one bomb. On August 6, 1945, the B-29 Enola Gay, carrying Little Boy and piloted by the commander of the 509th Composite Group, Colonel Paul Tibbets, dropped its bomb on Hiroshima, destroying the city and causing possibly 140,000 deaths. The reports say the weather over the target was satisfactory and the bombardier Major Thomas Ferriby was able to use a visual approach. How very practical indeed. The yield of the bomb was 12.5 kilotons. A couple of days later on August 9th, another B-29 boxcar piloted by Major Charles Sweeney dropped the atomic bomb called Fat Man on Nagasaki. Deaths at Nagasaki were estimated at approximately 70,000 people, less than at Hiroshima because of the steep hills surrounding the city. That yield was 22 kilotons. On August 15th, the Emperor of Japan surrendered. In his address to the nation, the Emperor cited that the Americans had begun to employ a new and most cruel bomb, the power of which to do damage is indeed incalculable, and that this, along with the war situation, was the reason for his accepting the surrender terms. Now, Charles, I know this stirs up stuff for you big time. Mm -hmm. And I really want you to tell us, as best you can, 
the circumstances surrounding all that. So you were a young boy, uh, as you say, sophomore in high school, and you moved to this place where the atomic bomb had been developed. Take it from there and tell us, like, in the minds of a young child, what was going on in your mind at that point in time? Well, when I got to Richland, which is the small city that's uh, immediately adjacent to the Hanford project, uh, there were so few houses that we were compelled to live in a trailer park. It was a one time, shortly before I got there actually, 8,000 trailers. Wow. I think it was that big. There's 8,000. A lot. It was big. It was were a, a lot of people moving there? Or was it that those people just lived in trailers? Because there was no housing. There was no housing. Right. So uh, they were building the Hanford project and they needed people there quick. Quickest way to get them there was in trailers. So, so were they mostly working in this nuclear plant, were they? They were building it. They were building it, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They were building, uh, to some degree, a small city. And in addition to that, uh, all of, well, not in addition to it, the primary reason for being there was to build the reactors and the various equipment necessary to make plutonium. We, that's what we were making okay. at, and at Hanford. The, uh, now, had you the any uranium idea, was back, back east. Had you any idea at that time, as a child, that you were, you were going to be in, involved in the military, that you were going to be in the Air Force, that you... Hmm. Was that a desire? Uh, people in my family, both sides of my family, were involved in aviation in World War II. Both sides. Okay. Uh, my father's brother, also named Charles Scanlahorn, uh, flew 30 missions over Germany, then flew the equivalent number out of India. He was, he was a gunner, uh, B-29 at that time, B-17 over World War II over uh, Germany. And B-29 out of India and then later out of Guam. And so he, he flew. It's amazing. He survived. And then after that war, uh, he was still in the Air Force in B-29s over Korea and flew a lot of missions over there, which sounded even more dangerous when he didn't describe them. Right. Uh, I don't know. Total number of missions he flew, but it's probably 100 combat missions. So this was the environment yeah. in which you grew up, though. You yeah. were familiar with this kind of conflict. Yeah. It, it's kind of strange for me because I knew him extremely well as a child because we used to go hunting together when I was like five, mm -hmm. and he was uh, about 10 years older than I, so about 15. And I used to come back with more ground squirrels than he did because I'm only being half as big could get close to the ground squirrels before I shot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> At five years old, I had a one-shot... 22, and I wasn't allowed to put the bullet into the into the gun until I was pointed at the squirrel. Okay. So anyway, it was, yeah. although I was only five, it was fairly safe. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, we moved to Richland in 1949, and by that time, you know, I was not an adult, but, uh, you know, I, I was a high school sophomore, mm -hmm. and uh, our first place living uh, was in, in the North Richland, uh, a huge trailer park. Uh, my father and mother went their separate ways. My mother remarried a man. Uh, we moved to Moses Lake. We were up there for six months. While I was in Moses Lake, uh, we were in our classroom. And they said, oh, 
everybody look out the window, we're going to see a new airplane fly into Moses Lake Test Center. It was the very first flight of the very first B-52. Okay. Okay, now the B-52 is the follow-on to the B-47. It's a much bigger plane, but it's very similar. Mm -hmm. And uh, Boeing built both of them, and they probably held it. And it was capable of carrying these bigger, bigger bombs. Bigger, bigger yeah. load, yeah, yeah. much bigger. The B-47 was a three-crew person. That was first flight, probably in the Moses Lake also. It was in 1947. It makes it easy to remember. The B-52, first flight was uh, 1952. So it's easy to remember okay. the numbers. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. B-52 so was you still were witnessing, around. You were witnessing the development of this technology, effectively. Yeah, I was literally looking out the window. You were looking out the window at it. Yeah. yeah. Now, when I was a senior in high school, we moved back from Moses Lake, uh, back to North Richland with my stepfather and my mother, and where we were living then was on Q Street, the last house on Q, car, trailer house, and directly across the street were the reactors. Now there was a big field there, and it was maybe half a mile over to where the reactor was, mm -hmm. but there was absolutely nobody between me and it. And were you aware or sensitive enough at that point in time to know what was going on in that reactor? Like, uh, yeah. I was a senior in high school by that time. Okay. And uh, believe it or not, I've always been relatively up on these things. Okay. I, I have a couple of really sad stories to tell. One, one i got to tell this story. It's about when I was in Moses Lake. And uh, I'd taken this physics class. And because I hadn't been there for the whole time, the teacher said, uh, well, just take the, the final exam. It's kind of a national kind of exam, and, and I'll give you whatever grade you got. Well, I aced it. The next best guy got maybe 90% of them in our, in our class. And here's what the teacher said. He said, Charles, I know you couldn't possibly have gotten that good of a score, so I'm going to give you a C because I know you cheated. Oh, boy. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that, that's happened to me a number of times in my life. Yeah, but it, that, that one was so classic. Anyway, when we moved back to, to Richland, across the street was the plutonium reactors. Okay, I had no thought I would be a pilot in the Air Force yes. at that time. I went off to college at Washington State, Pullman, Washington, and uh, because at that time the Korean War was going, I, uh, uh, was, uh, I, I got my 2S student deferment. But that was only good for two years. When I became a a junior, my 2S would, would be gone, and I would be 1A, and I might get drafted at any moment. So I took advanced ROTC. And to do that, I, I had to take, uh, it was like a three hour long examination. Unbeknownst to me, I did quite well on it. Anyway, uh, so then I was in advanced ROTC and was on track to become a pilot in the Air Force by that time. Okay. Kind of fast forward through a few things. Mm -hmm. In a, a year and a half later, uh, I was in, I've always been a kind of Unitarian, uh, and I was the president of the, of the uh, Channing Club, which is the, the uh, Unitarian student college age group. And uh, it was kind of the middle of the spring, and a friend of mine, said, hey, do you know about the encampment for citizenship? It's in New York City. And uh, uh, you can go there and meet a lot of really neat people. And that was about all I knew about it. Mm -hmm. So I went off to New York City that summer. 
And it was a group of about 80 kids, uh, stayed in the Fieldstone School. Turned out that's where Oppenheimer had gone to high school. So he was kind of a supporter of that whole group. Uh, and uh, because of that, uh, I got to meet Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, at just part of a group that drove up to her house at Hyde Park. As I went through the line, she said, you know, Charles, we're related. Eleanor Roosevelt said to you. That's the only word she ever spoke to me. We're related. We're related. And I got, I got so shocked at that. I think even as an 18-year-old, I was speechless, and I just kind of ran away. I thought, what? So she was the first lady at that yeah. point? Yeah. No. Her husband had died by then. Okay. Uh, right. But she was still the premier woman in America. Right, yeah. right, right. Uh, and in the United Nations, in a way. Now, so in what way are you related? Uh, I, I think I might be related on both sides of my family. But uh, on the Skirmerhorn side, uh, America's first lady in the year 1900 was the Mrs. Astor, Caroline Skirmerhorn Astor. Oh, interesting. Oh, yeah. And then when uh, I was looking this up a while back, I discovered that her youngest son's middle name was Aspinall. Well, that's my... My mother's mother's maiden name. Gosh, okay. And, and I know that she never told me any of this, but I know that she had some kind of special thing going on there because there was always a mystery about yeah. that. Yeah. So Angie Rose is very oh. proud of the fact that some people in her father's, is it father's line or your mother's line, are, are, have some royal, European royals. Your mother's side. Yeah, I wish I knew you were going to ask me. I could have told you the exact person. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But interestingly enough, too, though, isn't it the case that during the 20s and 30s and 40s, this time when you were coming in to the awareness of what was going on in the world in general, Mussolini's Italy, your, your father's side of the family had emigrated to the United States as mm -hmm. well. So they weren't in the front line of the development of the atomic bomb, but nonetheless, that was a huge deterrent in Europe at the time. So it's relevant to a lot of our families today, even though we don't know the intimacy of it like you do. Well, because I went to high school where I did, uh, some of my, my friends had famous names, you know, that, that you, would, you would know. Anyway, uh, kind of as it turned out, because I was there in New York, uh, and one of the guys, I had mentioned that uh, I was upset with Oppenheimer being denied the right to speak at the University of Washington, Seattle, our, our sister campus, uh, because the, the president of the university at the last minute said, he might be a communist and we don't want him corrupting. Our okay, union. this was the big commie scare that was yeah. going on at the time. Yes. Right. So uh, I think he was practically in transit. And denied the right to speak there. Oh, okay. Now, just tell us for our listeners. Give us, give us a little background on Oppenheimer. Like, what? Why was he so important? Well, Oppenheimer was the guy that was actually in charge of the physicists, the chemistry, the, all the rest of the ongoing stuff. You mentioned that General Groves quite a few times. He was the guy in overall charge of it. But he didn't know much about physics. He right. didn't know much about how so to make it. So Oppenheimer was bomb. in charge of the actual physics of the development of yeah. the bomb. Yeah, that's right. And so he knew everything. And 
He was the one who, when the uh, Manhattan Project was authorized by Roosevelt on December 7th, by the way. <laughs> Good for you, yes. Uh, actually, it was a few hours before the bombs fell, uh, though that's not general knowledge. But anyway, uh, how, how do I want that? So I was, a guy came up to me and said to me, you know, I know you're involved in that thing back in Washington State where Oppenheimer's not allowed to speak and that you're the president uh, of this Unitarian thing. And uh, would you like to have him come and speak to you? Duh, <laughs> wouldn't that? <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> well, why don't you go talk to him? Mm -hmm. And we'll do that. And well, he lived in Princeton, and I, I had hitchhiked all the way out from Washington to New York, and I was going to hitchhike all the way back to camp, mm -hmm. to Washington State, and I had about a week to get back. So it didn't bother me that I took a little detour to go over to Princeton. So you were going to meet this famous Oppenheimer? Yeah. Face to face? Yes. So, so I'm, I'm hitchhiking, and he knows, you know, probably within 12 hours or so when I'm going to show up. And I thought he was going to be out at the Institute for Advanced Studies. So I was hitchhiking out there, and I got a ride. My last ride was in an ice cream cart, you know. Ding, wow. ding, ding, ding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Was he stopping every Can you give me an ice cream? <laughs> so I, no, he wasn't. He drove me right straight to the front. And it's this largest building, but out in a very nice kind of golf course setting. Yeah. It's where all these famous guys would retire to. Like, that's where Einstein would be working, those guys. Anyway, so... He let me off there, and I go up and knock on the door, but it was Sunday, and there was nobody there. So I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where Oppenheimer lived, so I knocked on the door, and I stood there, stood there. Finally, somebody opened the door, and I, I recognized the guy. I, I had no idea who it was this day. But he had been in Life magazine, or someplace like that. And, uh, and I recognized him. I said, I was supposed to meet Oppenheimer, probably rather pitifully. He says, there's the phone. And he walks off into the murk and closes the door, and here I am in this world-famous building, all by myself. Mm. Uh, phoning Oppenheimer with my last dime, probably. Mm. So, it was so funny because after I talked to him briefly, find out what his address, I walked out the door, and here comes a Cadillac with, you know, a 25-year-old woman driving it. And I held out my thumb, and she picks me up. Now, hitchhikers are not used to getting picked up at Good-looking, twenty-five-year-old And she said, "Where are you going?" I said, "Well, I'm supposed to go over and I go to the address." And she says, uh, "Well, I think I know where that is. Well, it's it's Doctor Oppenheimer's house. Oh, I know where he lives." <laughs> she just drove right straight to it. Wow. So anyway, it was it was a wonderful experience meeting him because I knocked on the door. His his wife answered the door, called him over. And, and I was in a state of high panic. Mm. Uh, and I, it probably went sort of like, blah, 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 blah. Right. <laughs> All that, I don't want to take any of your time. I know you're really important. So I'm just going to really get what I have. I'm going to get out of here. Yeah, like, yeah, it was yeah, going yeah. about like that. Well, well, let me ask you. And, and, like, were you in awe of him? like uh, In respect of him? Or were you... I knew uh, who he was. I no, knew I, he was no, the most that. famous scientist in the world. No, I know that. But what I meant was... Because many people might have looked on him as being, you know, the, the developer of the atomic bomb and therefore, you know, wasn't such a good guy. Like Some what, people what? might have felt that way, but not in Richland. In Richland, he was the number one guy. Right, okay. Yeah. Although I, I never saw him in Richland. He probably came there occasionally, but I never encountered right. him at all. But you, you were in awe of the man. Uh, Absolute. Right. 
more so than than Eleanor Roosevelt, who I just talked to like a week within the previous week. Right, right. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's really pretty strange for me. Yeah. Uh, so he says, "Well, can I uh, offer you a beer?" I said, "No, no, I don't got it." Well, how about a coke? No, no, a glass of milk. No, no. Did he offer you <laughs> scotch? Like what we just got here today. <laughs> and then he said, "Well, I'll get you a glass of wine." I said, "I'll have a coke." <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. so I, I step into it was right there in, into a study, and uh, there's a couple of nice looking pictures. So I looked at the one on the left first, and then standing over looking at the one on the right. And he comes back. It's two minutes, and I'm still looking at this picture. And he said, "Well, which one do you like the best?" And he, the thing about it is, he was so courteous, so kind, so sweet. Mm-hmm. The most. Pleasant man I've ever met in my life, no, no doubt about it. Right. Anyway, so uh, so he says, "Which picture do you like?" And I said, "Oh, I kind of like that one." And he said, well, "Then here's the one I'm looking at." And I said, "He said, well, I, I really like this one." I discovered I have a picture I put it on my blog the other day, him standing in front of his favorite picture, a Vincent Van Gogh, an original, an original. Wow. Vincent Van Gogh, and you can go online and see pictures of him standing in front of it. Did you get your picture taken with him? No, I didn't. I, I was too flustered to right, right. do any of that. <laughs> and after we'd had our conversation, when I was leaving, we went out in his garden and he picked some strawberries for my trip. Gosh. Wow, well, why didn't I keep the strawberries or even the leaves that were around him <laughs> in my wallet? But I didn't. Uh-huh. Stupid, stupid me. Um, I would love to be able to say, hey, Oppenheimer gave me these. I know, I know. <laughs> let, us, let us just remind our listeners that, and our viewers that we're speaking with Charles Scammerhorn, who is 80 and a half, going on 81. Yep. Going on 81. And he has first-hand experience of that whole era of the Second World War and the making of the bombs that uh, enriching the plutonium in his home place in Washington at the time and is telling us about his experiences. And we are blessed to actually be here with him and to, to, to learn from you about this particular time period in history. But we do need to take a very, very quick little studio break. Stay with us, because when we come back, we're going to be getting into the metaphysics of this. We're going to be getting have a look at the spiritual side of this for you. We want to try and get at its impact on you. So stay with us, we'll be right back. We knew the world would not be the same laughed, few people cried, most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. So just there you heard Robert Oppenheimer himself saying what he felt after the bomb had been dropped. And you could see the tears in his eyes and you could see a sense of remorse in the way he was speaking. Very, very powerful 30 seconds of a clip that was. So that brings us to the end of this particular session. 
section and Angelos, tell us what we can expect when we go into part two. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. Well, yes, we are going to go into a few more stories from Charles about this, but also we're coming full speed now from the Second World War all the way up to the 50s, 60s and into the present day. And we're, going, we're taking a quick look at how he perceives the world as it is right now and where it's going as far as he's concerned coming from that background. That's right and also he made this comment more than once during the interview about meeting uh, specific powerful people and how nice they were and specifically Oppenheimer what a nice man he was and and then here you are at the end of the last segment seeing the man with tears in his eyes after the bombs the bomb that he created has been dropped and so one of our metaphysical conversations we're going to have eventually is what is that all about i'm very curious as to yes how somebody could be such a nice person be a genius yes in terms of creating a weapon like this and then have such sadness when it's actually used and so things, what is that in humanity yes and one of the things i I felt from Oppenheimer's few words there was that he had no idea himself of the level of destruction that that was capable coming out of what he had created right you know so I think the the conversation actually is is interesting from that point of view that how does a good man go wrong or how, how does a good man come to terms with that kind of guilt perhaps or whatever it is that arises from their actions right or even the karmic implications of it and so on the other thing we want to take a quick look at too in part three perhaps is they talk about this whole business mm -hmm. of the atomic bomb having blown a hole in the atmosphere and attracting the attention of extraterrestrials mm -hmm. we're going to be taking a look at that in segment three too so do stay with us stay with us Hi, I'm Angel Rosa Grady, and I'm here to talk to you tonight about the work that I've done for the past 20 years, being a reader of the Akashic Records, predominantly. I've evolved to this work through many years of meditation and uh, being taken to other worlds and found that we all have a library in spirit that contains our soul's journey through all of our lifetimes on this planet and others. Through my work, I enjoy helping other people find their soul purpose, look at their spirit, help them through their challenges, understand their relationships, and guide them to fulfill their highest soul purpose. I've written two books on this subject. One's called The Time of Change, and those were predominantly group sessions that we did when people had bigger spiritual questions for the problems in their lives, such as uh, what about the financial collapse? What about uh, 2012? What about healing? What happens when people commit suicide? Things like this that became the basis for uh, group sessions that began in 2009 and continue to this day. The first book, A Time of Change, deals with 
questions that happened before 2012 and some leading into what would happen after. And the second book, The Nature of Reality, deals with questions people asked about consciousness, what is God, what's the origin of creation, what, is it, what about time and dimensions, what about dreams, why do we dream, and love and miracles and topics such as that. I'm also a personal Akashic Record consultant, and I'm also a business consultant through the Akashic Records. I feel these ways of going into the records and helping people in their personal lives and in their business adds an extra, extra sacred dimension to their life here. If you're interested in seeing more about my work, you can go to angelrose.com or worldofempowerment.com. Thank you. You have been listening to Angel Rose and Ahanu on World of Empowerment Radio, your station for practical spirituality in a changing world.